Everyday Sublime, a podcast that sheds light on yin yoga and meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm glad you're here. Okay, a small bit of news before today's episode. I wanted to let you know that I compiled a series of reflections that serve as an overview to the essential themes of yin yoga. This series is based on many of the most common questions I receive from students in my training programs. This series is free to all new subscribers. Just sign up for my email newsletter so I can email them to you. You'll get them automatically about once a week. Those of you who are already subscribers got this series this summer, and I want to thank you all for the wonderful comments and feedback I've received. So to sign up, go to joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. And as a bonus, you will get access to two practice videos, one sequence that focuses on the spine and one sequence for the hips. I'm excited to share this material with you, you my listeners, and I hope that the videos and reflections both support your practice and understanding of yin yoga. I left a link for you in the show notes to make it easy for you, but the link again is joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. And now for this episode, the second installment of my interview with Matthew Remsky. Matthew is a yoga teacher and author whose new book, Practice and All is Coming, explores the abuse, both sexual and physical, as well as various cult dynamics in Ashtanga Yoga. This topic definitely falls outside this podcast wheelhouse of yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. And yet, the themes of power abuse, toxic group dynamics, and victim blaming, these are all important themes for anyone who occupies the space of a yoga mat or a meditation cushion in the modern yoga landscape. In this installment of the interview, Matthew explores dynamics of what he calls dynamics of deception, the conditions of high demand groups that contribute to the deception of group members, a dynamic whereby members of the group are implicitly or explicitly deceived about the origins and legitimacy of their group or leaders. And one of the things that is especially strange about the case study of abuse within Ashtanga Yoga is how Patapi Joyce leveraged a narrative of lineage, professing an unbroken continuity to an ancient tradition. The Sanskrit term for this succession of knowledge from one guru to the next is parampara. And parampara has, has been one of the main conceptual devices used by Joyce and his grandson, Sharat, to lend moral and spiritual authority to the system of postural yoga that they pervade. Even though recent scholarship has widely discredited the origin story of Ashtanga, revealing the exercises and postures to be adaptations of 19th century European gymnastics, the Joyce family has held tenaciously to their version of lineage, to their claim to parampara, thereby holding tightly to their authority as stewards of the tradition. The Joyce family held tightly to this narrative of legitimacy until, well, until they didn't. And this is what is both eerie and fascinating about the recent developments in the Ashtanga community. Literally within six months of of the publication of Matthew's book, Sharat Joyce, the head of the global Ashtanga yoga movement, he relaunched his website whereby the words Parampara, Ashtanga, and any mention of Patabi Joyce are all conspicuously absent. 
It's quite likely the most spectacular example of brand washing we've seen in recent memory. And at the time of producing this episode, it's hard for me to get a sense of the public reaction to these developments. However, after listening to this episode, I do encourage you to check out Sharat's website, which is www.sharatyogacenter.com. There will be a, there's a link for you in the show notes on this. But go to his website to appreciate the deeply unsettling washing of history. This brand washing is just another mechanism by which the victims are ultimately silenced. Now, this conversation was originally published on Robert Wright's platform, meaningoflife.tv. And if you're interested, you can listen to the full interview there. But I think it's a good idea to wade through this material slowly. Reading Matthew's book really rattled me deeply, and I came to see how I myself had been deceived by several yoga and meditation groups that I had participated in. So I want to titrate this series out slowly and encourage you to take it slowly. But for so many reasons, and as members of the yoga community at large, it's imperative that we all learn how to come to terms with abuse scandals so that these acts are condemned to the past. Matthew is an important voice among many others in leading the way for reform, and I'm indebted and inspired by his courageous leadership as well as to the bravery of all the survivors. So please practice self-care while listening. If you need to pause or take a break, please do that. But I thank you for your attention today and for your listening. Once again now, I bring you Matthew Remsky. What role does a sort of a, a, a kind of somewhat flaky, soft, or even... Uh, Directly, a direct interpretation of ancient spiritual texts um, that that draws on particular metaphysics. How do like how do like the the spiritual metaphysics factor in to this cocktail of of toxic group dynamic? It's. I think I, I have two feelings about this question. One is that it's it's hard to say uh, how. Um, pre-colonial, especially Indian wisdom, tradition, metaphysics play any kind of role in this at all, because I don't think, I don't think global yoga practitioners have access really to those metaphysics. I don't think we know, uh, the kinds of relationships that they're grounded in. I don't think that, uh, we have a clear idea of what the commitments, the social and economic and, um, relational commitments uh, there, there are, or were, or were supposed to have existed between teachers and students that would, that might ground all of this stuff. I do know that, uh, whether, whether they're accurate interpretations or not, there are all kinds of yogic or Buddhist or pseudo yogic or pseudo Buddhist ideas around, you know, emptiness, interpretability, uh, the play of Leela, um, uh, karma, um, all kinds of, of terms that are correctly or incorrectly used to describe or to, or to, or to rationalize things that we would rather not confront as being abusive. So, um, you know, definitely, uh, there are ways and, well, okay. So, well, I'll give an example of, of, uh, of a concept that kind of carries both of these histories. Um, 
I go into detail in the book uh, on a Sanskrit word that uh, is parampara. And now parampara in pre-colonial terms, uh, you know, and to, up till this point, even now in contemporary India, uh, means something very specific about how knowledge is transferred, especially spiritual knowledge in this context. It can apply to other forms of knowledge, knowledge as well. But it implies this unbroken, usually familial, certainly intimate relational transfer of knowledge that depends on a whole series of social commitments and contracts in order to keep it, keep it stable. Now, um, it also implies that the knowledge that's being transferred goes way back in history and has been tested by time. Well, modern yoga Ashtanga practitioners or Joyce method practitioners from America and Europe have started using the word parampara to describe what they belong to. And, and so what that means is that they're saying that a, a technique that Joyce developed in the late 60s uh, and changed several times as his shala got busier, they're, they're implying that that is traditional in a way. Um, they're implying that it has the weight of several generations of validation behind it. They're implying that they belong to a heritage rather than, you know, uh, a branded family business. And so we have this we have this beautiful word that carries an ancient heritage that and I don't know, like I, don't, I personally don't have access to how that actually works, but I know it's there. And I know it, it, it I, I hope that it can be recovered in some way or it can be made more known, more well known, or I can have more access to it at least. And then we have this sort of like contemporary bastardized version of the term that's used to pretend that uh, the people who are the people who are using it have something, you know, magical or special when when that's really deceptive. Right. I mean, and the deceptive, the deception around it, too. I mean, in, in the yoga landscape at large, at least in my experience, Ashtanga has held this kind of vaunted position as the legit, hardcore, no nonsense, um, real, authentic practice. Right, um, right. And I can't remember if you're in your and book. Oh, wait, though every every group does say that though. Like every like like the the Iyengar the, 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 the fold will say that this is authentic, this is true, this is this is this is hardcore. It's hard to know. I mean, every group makes proprietary and, and sort of like advocacy claims, self advocacy claims. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, I, I don't want to don't want to interrupt. You you you're, you're saying that. Yes, I would agree. Well, uh, and then there, there, in, uh, did you get into this in your book about the like Mark Singleton's work um, dr drawing on looking at the origin of modern postural yoga, of which jo I, Joyce's system comes as part of? Yes, yeah. So I, I I refer to it here and there throughout the book because you can't really avoid it. Singleton Singleton's work, um, I think, dated uh, to 2010, really blew the lid off of the notion that postural sequences or postures themselves or the way in which they're practiced in group class formats with adjustments that that any of that has any pre-modern heritage uh it's more like it's more like um indian anti-colonial activists in the 1920s and 30s uh wanted to indigenize physical culture influences from europe actually colonial influences uh, gymnastics, uh, harmonial gymnastics, weightlifting, bodybuilding. They wanted to indigenize these physical culture practices uh, 
as forms of you know national uh, physical culture and uh, but also but also anti-colonial pride building uh, and it worked it was really really effective uh, but what we have is something that pretends to have a stronger linkage to the medieval history of hatha yoga than it actually does and then that's what gets exported to the world is the notion that um, you know Joyce's system is ancient or that it goes back to Patanjali or something like that when when there's no evidence for that at all but it becomes a very powerful selling and marketing point. Um, right. and, and, you know, it's, it's so common within the modern yoga world. And this is why I think Singleton's book was so riveting and so um, outrageous to many people and also so um, uh, earth shattering is that, is that, you know, he doesn't phrase it this way, but, but the research as he lays it out uh, basically says, basically says, what we have believed about the modern posture about the modern yoga movement is mostly deceptive um is mostly is mostly um uh a kind of a kind of clever elaboration or 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 um it's an invention and, and, and it's an it's an invention and and we have and we have endowed it with a kind of orientalist you know I, idealistic uh, mysticism. Um, and that has become one of its main selling points. It's also what has made it resistant to, you know, contemporary biomechanics and contemporary kinesiology and, and, you know, contemporary physical therapy. So, um, yeah, it's really, it's really complicated, but, but there's part of, of the, <laughs> here's another example. There's part of this, this invocation of tradition that also shielded Patabi Joyce from scrutiny, because one of the things that his students would say, and they say it to this day, actually, is that, you know, his adjustments, uh, as brutal as they were, as injurious and as intrusive as they were, were traditional. Well, they might have been traditional in the sense that that's what Krishnamacharya did to him, but we don't have any evidence that physical adjustments in yoga existed prior to the 1920s. Uh, and I and I kind of I prove that I think in my book by citing the work of uh, several historians of medieval yoga who say. Uh, or one in particular, Dr. Jason Birch, who who says no, there's there's no evidence for anybody physically assisting anybody else in a yoga posture prior to the 20th century. Yeah, and just to just to jump on that for a second, the um, around the nature of the adjustments, because we've discussed how uh, the, the the component of sexual assault in them, but the physical assault too, of and the and the, and the, the stories of people just hearing ligaments snap or rip. Right. I mean, that was it was just sort of sending shivers down my spine as I read it, the whole book in, in a way. But um, right. that 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 is uh, just it's harrowing to, to read. Yeah. And it also shows it shows how um, effective and immersive the propaganda was around Joyce's power that that, um, you know, the senior students openly joke about how they all crawled crying out of practice every day. They all openly uh, talk about how, um, you know, how, oh yeah, he blew up my knee and he was doing this, but I got the posture or he, or he led me towards a more advanced, you know, position in the series or something like that. The, the way in which um, this group of people was enculturated to 
withstand pain is extraordinary. And I think it's had a huge ripple effect uh, or, or kind of like a trickle-down effect into the next generation with regard to uh, how we regard the body and effort and pain in general. Um, you know, there are very few, I would imagine, in North America and Europe, yoga teachers who are cranking people uh, today the way that Joyce cranked people in his day. But um, uh, but I think that the the, the basic ideas around what pain means, what injury means, what pushing yourself means, what being pushed by a teacher means, those have all remained intact Mm -hmm. in places. Yeah. So we, we've, you've, you've sort of discussed a little bit about the, the spiritual interpretation and reframe of a lot of this behavior. What has been some of the, the response you've received or seen in, in light of, uh, the stuff coming out and also in light of your book, um, what, how is how is the community both within Ashtanga and outside of the yoga community outside of Ashtanga uh, receive this? It's it's really it's it. There's a huge spectrum, and um, there's kind of a line in the sand, as it were, of that spectrum between um, people who um, identify as Ashtanga practitioners and people who don't. And amongst the people who do, if this is a really difficult book to read and, um, you know, some people have really negative reactions to it. Um, although, you know, it's not like the reactions that they've had to my more informal blog work over the years, which, you know, they've, which a lot of people have just been able to dismiss or to say, you know, it's agenda driven or something like that, or that, you know, you just, you just hate our community or something. Um, which actually, you know, the, again, this is very personal for me. I have friends who I've tried to talking about your work with both yeah. here and in Europe. And, and there has been this view that you're this opportunist, you're, you're swooping in on, on this thing just to, to elevate your own work and your own, your own profile. And, and I've just, right. I've always gone cross-eyed when, when that's come up, I'm like, well, no, no, yeah. this is not what he's doing. Um, but I have to say it's opportunist in the sense that, that nobody was doing it for one thing. And, and I would say that anybody in the Ashtanga world who calls me an opportunist should really ask themselves the question, if you knew about this, where was your book? Where was your newspaper report? Where were, why didn't you go to a journalist? I mean, it didn't have to be me. Why was it me? Why was it me? It's like it's 2010, Annika Lucas published her story, published her account, and it got buried on Facebook. There was like five likes to it. Nobody shared it. You know, there's one comment saying, you know, this, a lot of people are going to say you're a very brave person sometime in the future. Fast forward six years later, she, she republishes her blog. By that point, I'm talking to Karen Rain for two years. Every, people asked for like a decade, where did Karen Haberman go? Where did she disappear to? Like, you know, she got so far away from the Ashtanga scene and the yoga world in general, she changed her name. And it's like nobody wanted to ask a little bit further. Nobody wanted to go. Nobody wanted to take that, take that farther. So, I mean, okay, opportunistic. Yes. Uh, but that's because there is this great big vacuum. And with regard to, you know, my profile, well, we all have jobs and, and, you know, my job as strange as it is, and as self-made as it is, is that I look at abuse in spiritual communities. And so, yeah, does it raise my profile? Yes. Does it win me fame and fortune? Um, 
No. <laughs> I mean, and anybody who thinks, anybody who thinks that somehow I've gotten rich or, or doesn't, I mean, they just don't know anything about what writing a book means or what it means to sell it or, or any, anything about it. And, and, you know, it's like, did you, did anybody say that, that, uh, that, uh, that Rowan Farrow was opportunistic for reporting on Harvey Weinstein? I don't think so. They looked at the work and they said, wow, he gained the trust of, you know, what was it? Eight women who, who he published on in that first New Yorker. He, he gained the trust. He, he was able to publish their testimonies. He pretty much stayed out of the way. Uh, and, uh, he created a victim centered, uh, narrative. And so, um, but you know, I didn't actually, you asked the question and I didn't want to go on a rant about like, well, well, actually, you know, I just want to interject too, is that the, 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 the people that, that I'm in contact with that had said that actually have read the book and have actually completely changed their tune. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, so, cool. the, so, so even with people that were initially critical, they've read the book and they feel that this is a very fair balanced treatment and an important, uh, that it's that it's out now and i hope i hope that i hope that slowly gets in i mean a part of i think i think part of that maybe the threshold has to do with you know um it's not like it's not like i was a professional journalist in sports or something like that and and you know i got wind of this story and and people didn't know who i was but you know i've been writing as a cultural critic within the yoga world for the last five years there's lots of people or not the last five years since you know my my book on patanjali's uh, sutras was 2012 and um you know there's 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 been a lot of divided opinion about the value of what i do ever since then so and then, and then, as a cultural critic, as I've reported on on various abuse stories, um, you know, the Anusara um, implosion, the Jiva Mukti lawsuit, uh, the Satyananda Yoga thing, um, uh, abuse revelations, um, Shambhala, Shambhala, right, Rigpa. Uh, as I've as I've done that work, I've made a lot of um, allies and I've made a lot of enemies, and so. Um, but all of that is all of that really is in the sort of like public, uh, very jousty sphere of of blog work and social media. A book is a different thing, you know, when it's fully fully uh, editorialized and and uh, fact checked, and you know, there's legal backing of publication behind it. You know, it's 380 pages long, and there's 380 footnotes or whatever, and and um, it's 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 well cooked, and so. It's. I think it's unfortunate that um, I, I already had a name coming into this particular uh, work uh, that I carried, um, you know, the baggage of past work with me. But at the same time, I don't think I would have gotten the book contract without that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's 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 it just is what it is. I hate that phrase, but I did nothing. <laughs> there's nothing. There's 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 nothing to have been done about it. Um, yeah. And. Uh, <laughs> One of the things I really appreciated about the book was the level of analysis that you went into sort of deconstructing the dynamics in these high demand groups that that broadens the conversation from just saying, oh, well, the perpetrator was just a bad apple. Like he was he was a bad man. And, um, you know, we can throw him out but keep keep this very valuable integral integral practice intact or the opposite which i hear a lot too is 
okay, well, if these people, like with Karen Rain, going back again and again and getting uh, continually assaulted, what's going on in her psychology or someone's psychology like that that, that, that keeps them there? That, that Why aren't we talking about that more? Right. And you, you I know you, you're excellent at sort of... Um, eviscerating both of those, <laughs> <laughs> those, right. those views. Right. Yeah. So, 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 so on, on one hand, yeah, on one hand, the bad apple argument is just, is just doesn't work because nobody assaults, you know, um, Jubilee Cook estimates that there's 30,000, her conservative estimate was that there's 30,000 distinct episodes of abuse or, or assault, uh, that, that, um, we could, we could, um, just, just briefly take, yeah. Take me through the math on that. Oh, because... yeah. So, so Jubilee Cook is one of the women who gave testimony, and she was one of one of the women who was there for eight months. And so, I'll talk about her in the second section as well, in the second part of this answer. Um, and she was assaulted repeatedly, but she said, "You know, this happened to me in three different postures every single morning. This is the number of mornings. Every morning that I was there in Mysore, I saw three other women who who got assaulted in those three postures so she starts to she starts to build you know numbers out of what she personally experienced and what she personally witnessed and then she just counts up the years she counts up the tours um i think she uses no i don't think she uses my research to try to figure out uh how many women he actually came into contact with when he's away from the mysore shala on world tour you know in california or new york or boston or whatever um or hawaii uh and she comes up with a with a conservative estimate of 300 or sorry 30,000 uh individual sexual assaults over what's likely a 30 year period. So, um, that does not, that's not a bad apple. <laughs> that's a whole mm-hmm. orchard. <laughs> that's like, that's like, um, that's a, that's a, that's a bad apple and a whole bunch of people saying, no, this is great. This is a great apple. This is a great apple. And, um, and similarly, you know, in, in a contemporary story, more contemporary story, what we're seeing with, uh, Manuso Manos right now, which um, is he's and Manuso yeah. for just for for reference for who is he? He's he's probably uh, BKS Iyengar's most famous, most prominent, most senior student, and the one who most embodies his own teaching persona, uh, his own his you know BKS's gruffness, his you know his his shouting, his. Uh, his way of, of both electrifying and terrifying a room at the same time. Uh, and he has recently uh, had allegations, numerous allegations of sexual assault verified against him by an independent investigation that was uh, commissioned by the Iyengar Yoga uh, Association of the United States um, and uh, or INOS. And so, so in that ongoing story, which is, which is still unfolding, uh, we have this sense administratively within INOS that, well, you know, he's been delisted, he's been decertified, and the Iyengar family has removed his right in light of these crimes, uh, which can't be prosecuted. They're all um, outside of the statute of limitations. Uh, but in light of these behaviors, uh, he's been prevented from using the Iyengar trademark in his teaching going forward. And that's it, right? Like, this is not a regulated profession. He can go on and teach whatever he wants. He can he can teach Manuso Manos Yoga uh, tomorrow and open up shop wherever, uh, maybe in Bali or something. Uh, and, and 
but the thing is, is that administratively we have this sense that, well, he's been, he's been sort of, uh, excised, uh, somehow he's been amputated and, you know, we're all fine now. Well, here's somebody who had such teacherly influence for such a long time and such administrative influence over the entire organization for such a long time. Now I would say what the organization has to do is say, okay, who actually trained under this guy and who would attribute their certification to him and who was tested by him because everybody involved in that is going to have to be, I think they're going to have to answer some questions about, well, what did you actually learn from him? Uh, Here's somebody who is probably less of a yoga teacher than a sexual predator posing as a yoga teacher. What did you actually learn? Um, and, and how can we help you learn some more? Or how can we help you mitigate this, this um, educational stain, really? Um, so, yeah. And then on the other side of it, it's like anybody who asks, why did Karen Rain keep going back to get assaulted by Patabi Joyce every every year? Doesn't know anything about trauma, doesn't know anything about domestic violence, doesn't know anything about um, uh, a trauma bond, doesn't know anything about being gaslighted. Uh, they, they basically the, that that response, which is very common. And I would say, you know, not. It's, it's so common it shouldn't be shameful. I just think people should be open to correcting it. Um, people who have that response really have to get educated in uh, what it means to uh, be in a toxic power dynamic that confuses your basic uh, capacity to feel as though you have agency. I, yeah. I, bring, I bring up the metaphor in the book that you know if you, if you broke a person's leg – uh, and, and, uh, there they were on the ground. Uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't blame them for not running away from you, uh, as you came in to damage them further. Uh, but somehow with sexual assault, we, um, we look at the survivor, the victim or the survivor, and we say, why didn't you run away when, when actually the, the, the sexual and the physical assault have deprived them in many cases of their capacity to feel as though they are autonomous, to feel as though they uh, can can have uh, you know individual agency, to feel as though they have their own bodies even. Or their right, and that, that's a huge, hugely important piece that I think gets overlooked. Uh, I know you're not fond of this guy, and I, I think I I have mixed feelings about it myself, but I, I was glancing through Jordan, Jordan Peterson's book and he makes some comment that I think is re relevant here right. where he says, um, you know, if we deny a victim response, some responsibility, we deny them agency. Right. Yeah. Except that he's going to use that to say that, that, that we somehow as observers of the victim have to give them responsibility within our assessment of what happened during a particular crime, right? Mm -hmm. Like what he's not, he's not speaking. He's it, it, the problem with that is that there might be some, there might be some, some therapeutic application of that principle of, you know, well, you know, in this moment, do you feel as though you have agency with regard to how you're moving forward, coming out of this experience? That might happen privately in therapy later, but if you, yeah. but if, but what happens is, uh, and I can hear it in that quote, 
is is that is that the the notion of victim is turned into a kind of psychological state instead of uh, uh, you know a label for somebody t- against whom a crime has been commit- committed. It's like nobody. The, the prob- and the problem, the further problem with assigning responsibility, regardless of what that even means, like, what does that mean? Is, are you res- is it about the clothing? Is it about the fact that you went that morning? Is it about the fact that you, you know, your, your voice froze when you wanted to say no? Like, what, what responsibility are we actually talking about? And, and can it survive? Can that discussion survive the fact that one of the reasons that Karen Rain was assaulted over and over again was because the group had deceived her about what was going on. And it's like, there is the problem that I don't think Jordan Peterson or any of his kind of like the, the alt-right bros want to really face is that you cannot be responsible for having been deceived. There's no, I mean, it's like, I'd even say his own fans aren't responsible for him deceiving him, <laughs> him deceiving them. It's like, you, you, it's very, very difficult to protect yourself against being deceived. That's what deception is. It, it happens to, it happens to intelligent people. It happens to mediocrely educated people. It happens to, to people who aren't educated at all. Um, if you are if you are deceived about why you are in a place, about what it's going to offer you, uh, then you're you've really already had your agency taken away, uh, and it's not like you're going to give it. It's 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 been taken. Both places, both both cults that I was um, that I was uh, uh, recruited into, they presented themselves as other than what they actually were. No. There's no part of Ashtanga yoga that said to Karen Rain, hey, this is a cult in which you'll be uh, sexually assaulted every day. No, that's not what they said. They said, this practice will give you spiritual liberation. And if you follow this, this, this teacher's instructions, you know, as closely as you can, and you surrender your body up to them, your process will go a lot faster. Mm-hmm. That's what they said. That's what they said. And if, and if she's to blame for believing that, well... You know, it's like, let's, 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 let's have another conversation about what people actually end up believing. Okay, we'll pause the conversation there. And given the nature of these topics, I strongly recommend going slowly through this material. There's a lot to process and it may take time to metabolize. In the next installment, Matthew discusses attachment theory and how that plays into the dynamics of isolation and abuse within cult dynamics. He also explores how best to support the survivors and what the yoga culture at large can do to reform its culture moving forward. As always, I look forward to sharing that part of the interview with you soon. And as a parting reminder, if you'd like to receive your access to my Essentials of Yin Yoga series, just head over to my website, which is www.joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe, and all of that material will soon be yours. Thanks so much for listening today, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.